All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Bradley Hassey, a.k.a. Sir Bradley from the Junior Classics Podcast. And I have a very special, uh, fascinating guest to me, uh, Rob Wolf. And I thought it would be fun if Rob introduced himself, uh, because after you guys might be like, what the heck does this have to do with children's literature and whatnot? But uh, this is mostly for the parents. And um, I'm going to show you guys uh, why Rob has a lot to offer you guys. So Rob, why don't you introduce yourself because you have evolved over the last uh, several years and just tell us where you're at now. Most of my evolution seems to be my hair going from my head to my <laughs> back, but right. so I'm not really losing it. It's just a relocation program. But, um, you know, I guess germane to two kids and parenting and whatnot. I, I am the father of two, two girls, a, a nine and, and seven year old girls, a uh, husband to a, an Italian wife, so I am I am kept in line pretty rigorously. <laughs> and in a, a, by training, I was a, a biochemist, a, a research biochemist in the areas of autoimmunity and cancer. Uh, developed a pretty significant health crisis, ulcerative colitis, um, 22 years ago. Bad enough that I was facing a, a surgery or some pretty pretty nasty uh, chemotherapeutic interventions. And I, I was looking at an MD PhD track for a graduate program. And I knew enough about the ulcerative colitis condition that I knew that I didn't want to do that. Like if you right. have to do it, it'll save your life, but um, it, it's not a fix. Um, it, you know, your, your life is irreparably changed after that. And again, like it, it, in certain situations, it's totally appropriate. It can save your life, but um, uh I wanted to do something else and through some kind of interesting circumstances, I started investigating kind of ancestral diet and lifestyle, trying to look at, you know, is there anything worth learning from the period of time before agriculture and maybe even before recorded history as it, as it might relate to human health. Um, it's interesting. Like if we wander over into veterinary medicine, it's not really a controversial topic to say, you should probably feed a cat the way that cats are optimized. You should feed a dog the way that dogs are optimized. But then when it comes to humans, mm -hmm. th there's this controversy around, you know, that there might be some things that are more optimized and less optimized for kind of, you know, uh, uh, effective human health. And so for the last 22 years, I've been talking about writing. Uh, uh, I wrote two New York Times bestselling books and we've had a, a top rank uh, iTunes podcast for over 10 years. And we basically just talk about health and wellness through this kind of evolutionary or ancestral health lens. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, but we've been able to help a lot of people. And the, yeah. oftentimes it's the folks that have run the gamut of conventional medical interventions. And, um, once you get beyond like a gunshot wound or getting hit by a bus or, or what have you, Conventional medicine is amazing for emergency medicine, for life critical things. But then when we start dealing with chronic degenerative disease, we have to be honest, it's not really that good. It's not that effective at, at dealing with it. And I, I would argue that this um, kind of ancestral health perspective is, is very comparatively infinitely more effective than kind of the, the conventional medical model. And Absolutely. Long winded rambling intro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, one of those people you've helped is me and uh, my family and uh, just for all the parents out there. So how Rob will mesh with uh, most of the parents of my listeners is I run with um, a crowd that is very 
um, into health, uh, very into um, starting to homestead. Seems like the trend's going there. Basically, they want more agency in their life, uh, to become more sovereign, to not be uh, part of a dependent class, which is kind of like an idea that I've uh, been thinking about lately. And I, your podcast was the first one I ever listened to. And I went to a CrossFit gym in 2010 and people started, I started hearing people talk about how bread like wasn't healthy for you. And I was like, get out of here. What are you guys talking about? And, um, you know, I just started looking into it cause I found it interesting. And I think it was like a statement in the CrossFit level one manual, which is just kind of hilarious to even bring that up. But there was a statement about like, um, perhaps like the most destructive or way to like destroy the capacity of America, whatever, just be, uh, you know, the way that we eat. And I was like, man, like, that's, that's a really powerful statement. Like maybe I should think about more about this anyway. So I've listened to you for a long time. I've learned a lot from you and you've actually prepared my family for two health crises that we had not too long ago. I myself have ulcerative colitis that I'm uh, dealing okay. with and doing okay with it. And uh, my son also has a, a kidney uh, issue that we had to deal with, but um, kind of like you were talking about the other day on your show with your daughter having um, the peanut allergy. It's like, you do everything you think you can and stuff still happens. So don't beat yourself up about it, but you've prepared my family to at least, uh, we were not in crisis mode. We were like, well, we know how to pull this lever. We know how to turn that dial and get things ratcheted in the best we know how. Um, so when it comes to health, homesteading, um, and really I I've always enjoyed when you've gone off the rails on your show, so, so to say, and pontificated on what, um, like alternative versions of, uh, food, economic, medical systems, like what they could look like. And I really, um, find your unique lens of looking at things through like sustainability, um, regenerative agriculture, resiliency, optimal human health, um, I find that fascinating when you talk about like those systems and what they could look like. Um, and also you don't, your stuff's not fear-based. Uh, you basically just lay it out. You know, these are some incentives that seems to be driving these things. And then here's some solutions that we possibly could uh, provide for that. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about homeschool first. Cause you've um, homeschooled your daughters why did you decide to do that? What went into you guys making that decision? And why do you think that's uh, more optimal or why does that work for your family? You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we now live in Montana, um, two years, we spent two years in Texas. And uh, prior to that, we were in Reno, Nevada for almost 10 years. And uh, we thought that we were going to be there over the long, long, long haul. Mm -hmm. And uh, both girls were in a Montessori program. And for preschool and kindergarten, it was pretty good. But mm -hmm. we discovered that for first grade and beyond, like the, the school goes through eighth grade, um, there was this, well, it, it, this, this weird element of, of education of not holding kids' feet to the fire, not holding them accountable, um, had infiltrated even into this Montessori program. So like kids would get exposed to things, but... Uh, then they were given the license to go do whatever it was that they wanted to do instead of like, okay, yeah, if you want to play guitar or play in the Creek or whatever, that's great. But we have to do some math. We have to do some spelling. And uh, we discovered that our, our oldest, uh, you know, the, the year of first grade, effectively she did nothing. Hmm. I mean, it was, 
she 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 went retrograde on math reading and spelling from from first grade relative to kindergarten which is gut wrenching yeah. you know and and uh, she had a good time cuz she played a lot and had some good friends but uh, we looked around and the public school options were not really that appealing in this area, un mm -hmm. unfortunately. And we really looked and looked and uh, I had been curious about Texas for a long time as a, a possible place to relocate. And uh, relatively, the, the public school systems there are really remarkably good, particularly in that like San Antonio going up to New Brumfels area, the hill okay. country of Texas, really quite good schools. Yeah. And so we've. We moved there with the thought that we would have a fallback of public school, but we also wanted to try this, this homeschool deal because my wife and I have worked from home for a long time. We have the opportunity to go travel. And, you know, if I've got an internet connection, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I can, yeah. I can run my, my business and do my stuff. And so it was like, Hey, we could be in Italy for a chunk of time, or we could be in Costa Rica for a chunk of time, or we just do some cool enrichment things from home. And so it was 2019 that we started spinning up the homeschool deal. And, uh, there was about a three month period that it was kind of like, Oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> You know, we're, yeah. we're in over our head, but um, my wife is very good at math, but also particularly good at languages. She's fluent in Italian and Spanish, mm. uh, uh, muddles through a little bit of Russian. And so she's quite good on that. Nice. I'm pretty good at math. And so I kind of run the, the kid's math part. Mm -hmm. She runs the spelling, reading, writing, and really the rest of it, we kind of feel like whatever the kids interests are, we can weave in history and art and, mm -hmm. and different things like, like that. And so, uh, we had that year of 2019, uh, to kind of shake the, shake the, you know, the rust off of the process. And then when COVID hit, yeah, we, we were just like, Oh my God, we're the smartest people in the right. world. Like we Got were insulated. doing this stuff. There was, yeah, there was no, no, uh, disruption with that. And, uh, honest to God, we, we threaten the kids sometimes like <laughs> what we've laid out for them is you guys need to be, um, good students ready to go. Like I, I captain, like we're, we're going to do this stuff or we'll stick you in regular school. And the kids are like, please know <laughs> I will do well, you know, and, and, uh, so far it seems to be going really well. Like we can, we can teach to mastery on topics instead of just like having a specific curriculum that, okay, well today it, it says we're doing this and we're going to do this and whether you get it or not, you know, we, we have to move on. So whether, particularly on the math, um, we just, it, it, the, the system we use is called math UC and you, you, uh, the kids see it, then they do it. And there's some like manipulatives with it. So like different colored blocks that represent different numbers. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really cool. Like it teaches you algebra and all kinds of stuff with that. And then the end stage is that the kid needs to be able to teach the material back to you okay. as if you were, you, you didn't know it. And until the kid can teach it back to you in a satisfactory way, they don't really understand it. Mm -hmm. And so that is the point where we move forward. And man, I look back at what I did and I'm like, I never did that. Right. You know? And, and so, uh, you know, so far that's been really good. We have a summer science project of, uh, catching turtles because we live near a, a small lake here in Montana and we have already caught about six turtles. And so we've been researching turtles and, 
how do you tell the sex, um, you know, their, their size, their weight, um, are there any interesting physical characteristics, where do you catch it? And we're basically going to take photos and then do a little bit of uh, kind of field biology, you know, documenting information. And then at the end of the summer, we're going to put all that together and do like a Costco.com book where we basically create a book around the, you know, our, our summer science project of awesome. turtles. And so we're getting in some history, some biology, some, some basic scientific method of, uh, consistently weighing and measuring things like you, you do it three times and then you take the average and you know why we do that. And so, and the kids are just like, they are out there like trying to catch turtles every single day and they've got yeah. little notebooks and, and all that. And you think about trying to convince a kid that measuring something three times in a row and then taking the average is an interesting thing, <laughs> you would be nuts until you find something that they're really excited about, like Definitely. catching turtles. So yeah. the, the homeschool deal has provided this opportunity to do to do all this cool stuff and teach them virtually everything that they're ever going to need to know, uh, you know, until they they decide to potentially specialize in something you know, it, it puts it in a context where they're excited. And man, if somebody's excited about something, like you have to stick them in a, a locked cell to keep yeah. them from doing that thing. You know, whereas if somebody is uninterested in, in a topic, it's a very rare person that will rally the, the, you know, the, the resources to, to do work on that topic. So that's what homeschool has done for us. You know, it's, uh, provided this latitude for kind of our lifestyle, but also it's allowed us to, um, really cater to the interests of the kids. And we definitely hold their feet to the fire. Like mm -hmm. there are some expectations about progress and process and all that type of stuff. But at the same time, um, you know, the one daughter is really into wolves another daughter is really into links. And so we can steward a bunch of their curriculum around wolves and links. And that's, yeah. that's awesome. There's history and bot biology and botany and physics and all kinds of stuff that can be taught around those, those interests. Nice. Uh, speaking of wolves and Montana, I think I, I'm not sure I heard this from, but I heard there's this uh, like snowmobile excursion you can go on where you can follow a pack of wolves hunting. And I was like, man, yes. that would be yeah. that, that's got to be on my bucket list for sure. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so what what do you think? What have been your biggest uh, challenges and joys through this homeschooling process? challenges and joys the joy you know just the amount of time that we get to spend with the kids which sometimes it, you're also like man i just want an hour alone <laughs> sure, because sure. we work from home we have a home gym um we all go to jujitsu together the whole yep. family does jujitsu um and then homeschooling so we spend a lot of time together but you know the uh our oldest daughter is nine years old and i i it, it's gone by in a blink and so the amount of time that we're able to spend together is amazing. Mm -hmm. So that, that definitely, I think is one of the, the biggest things. <laughs> and, and we get that a lot too, mm -hmm. the, uh, the interlopers. Um, and then, uh, challenges. Um, I, I would say it, it's the flip side of that. Like sometimes the family needs some space, you know, like, uh, I, 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 Nikki and I were just talking the other day, my wife, I was like, Hey, we need to start doing some divide and conquer. Like the whole family doesn't need to go shopping. Like one of us should go shopping. Mm -hmm. Maybe if a kid wants to go shopping, they can go with us. But, um, the hour that I spend shopping or even getting gas in my car, 
just like, oh, this is nice. I can listen yeah. to the podcast I want to listen to sure. and, you know, do some stuff like that. So I would say for us personally, the biggest challenge is actually too much time together. And, and because we moved, um, you know, three months ago, like there's just all the chaos in the process. We had a six or nine month period of looking for somewhere to move. And so you're just unsettled. And then we've had three months here in Montana where we're kind of getting our, our roots established, but you still don't know a lot of people. We don't really have kid coverage. So we haven't had a date night, you know, mm -hmm. and some things like that. So, um, the too much time together has honestly been the, the biggest challenge for, for us. I think if, um, you know, like if I worked out of the house two days, two or three days a week, and Nikki worked out of the house two or three days a week, I think it would be maybe even a little bit more optimum in a way because there would be that distance and you can actually miss each other a little yeah. bit like, Hey, tell me about your day. But when, when we sit down at the dinner table, there isn't much tell me about your day because we were all together. Like the only time we really get that is when they go to jujitsu class or like horseback riding or, or something where it's like, so what did you do there? And, you know, so it, it, that distance actually creates the opportunity for some, some, uh, newness and for some part of their life to occur that we weren't immediately a part of. And so they can share that with us. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, like I was saying, a lot of the families, most of the families that listen to me, they're very committed to becoming more self-reliant in terms of, uh, controlling their own food source, uh, becoming responsible for mm -hmm. their family's health, education, not just like outsourcing, you know, everything. And, um, what I admire and respect about you is you seem to, uh, through your health issues, you kind of came onto online to some of this stuff, maybe earlier than other people. And you shared that knowledge with everyone. Um, the other thing is just this idea of, um, turning a household into, it seems like now a household or a home, um, maybe like in general is kind of a place of, um, consumption and leisure recreation but how can we i think a lot of people want to make their household uh productive um mm -hmm. in terms that uh, benefits like their family so it seems like a lot of people are starting to turn away from maybe like just uh, blindly following institutional guidelines and they're starting to seek knowledge from more obscure perhaps but like knowledgeable individuals like yourself have you noticed that trend emerging do you think it's accelerating what are your thoughts on on that yeah for sure i mean uh, uh i think that that was happening a lot anyway and then covid just like flash created yes. a flashpoint gasoline this thing yeah um it, it's interesting and i don't say this in a bragging way because we've honestly so so you made a, a statement that that you know we which I really appreciate. I really do try to not broker in fear. Mm -hmm. um, if there's what I talk a lot about is risk, like, yeah. you know, what's the risk profile and how do you mitigate that? If you, you want to mitigate that. And honestly, I've been surprised that like the world in general, hasn't suffered a really remarkable dislocation sooner than, hmm. than what has happened. Like I was very attuned to like the, the financial bubble that we were running up into in 2008 and, uh, uh, we had dried food and we had some water and we had some redundant energy production options and stuff like yeah. that. And so, you know, I I've honestly been surprised that things haven't gotten squirrely before this. And so when COVID happened, I was like, well, of course a, a aerosolized, you know, um, 
you know, viral vector is going to waylay the, you know, civilization. Like <laughs> this is just one of these, like, you know, main existential threats. It's like a, a comet hitting the planet, a super volcano, nuclear war, you know, there's just these, these lists of things that I wouldn't fixate on, but you can do some risk mitigating around that stuff. And so we had some food, we had some water, we had some, some backup energy production stuff. And, um, it didn't, and then just psychologically, I knew that that was a possibility. So when this rolled out, we really didn't have that paralysis or period of fear that oftentimes yeah. people experience in kind of a crisis scenario where it could take hours, days, or weeks before they kind of wrap their head around like, oh man, things have changed. Like the mm -hmm. world has changed, but we've definitely seen a big transition since then. Uh, we have an online community called the Healthy Rebellion, mm -hmm. and it's interesting the um the fact that the world changed the fact that there were some mild food shortages and stuff like that people were paying attention they're like oh this could have been far far worse mm -hmm. like we could have we could have really had a terrible situation occur here not to say that it hasn't been terrible but um the SARS-CoV-1 virus had a 15 percent fatality rate um that could be a civilization ender just because you have enough key people that die. Like nobody knows how to run the nuclear power plant. Nobody yeah. is left that can run trains or drive trucks. I mean, it, it's, uh, and, and that is a not difficult thing to imagine happening. So, no. we, you know, we've seen a massive influx of people that are very interested in kind of the homesteading resiliency process. Um, I wouldn't, I, I guess, circumventing the standard information channels, you know, like it, it's interesting, the toxicity of social media and also kind of this cancel culture feature has caused a lot of people to seek out alternate venues for yeah. some decent information because no one person can stay on top of everything, you know, but. Or you go you crazy group, trying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you, but if you get a group of people, you know, a couple of hundred, a few thousand people and everybody is committed to helping one another, um, you have a really remarkable opportunity to, for some very smart people, subject matter experts, you have some engineers, you have some healthcare providers, you have some people that are experts in food production. They can sift through a lot of this and they can give you some best practices about, oh, okay, well, you live in this arid environment. Here's what I would recommend on like some rainwater catchment and, you know, food production and well, where would you live? I don't know that I would even try to grow that much food. I would just get very good at hunting and drying and canning and, and, you know, uh, that type of stuff. And so you can, you can get some really remarkable information. And, and uh, something I mentioned to my wife the other day, it's interesting, everything customer service related there is try it, the attempt is to automate it. So there's no human being on the back end because, humans require a paycheck and healthcare and you know there's some cost associated with it but i wanted to buy some sort of a grill and i i read online and it's like okay it's got all these amazon reviews or what have you but i'm like i still don't know which one i want and i told mm -hmm. my wife i just want to go into a place that like there's some reasonably knowledgeable person and they ask me three or four questions. Well, yeah. how often are you going to use it? And what, what's the largest number of family members, uh, you know? And, and then they're like, sir, I think you should do this one versus that one. It's like sold done. Like <laughs> right. um, we just, I think all of us reach this decision fatigue by like noon most days, like yeah. most people, particularly if they're in this, this kind of more um, self 
actualized, like you're, you're, you are the, the captain of your own boat kind of deal. You make decisions from the moment you, you start making decisions all the time. And I'm not, I'm not running down folks that maybe have more of a corporate job, but you kind of show up, you plug into the machine. And oftentimes you, there's not really that much, well, should I do this or should I do that? And I, uh, when you are exposed to all that, it, the, the decision-making process, it can get very fatiguing because you, you're not really sure what you should do. And so having a community of people that you can lean on to help with things like, should I do this backup generator or that one, you know, and, and having someone that cares about you and ask some good questions and then gives you some, okay, I would pick between this one and this one. And these are the pros and cons of the two of them. Like, um, that's where I see folks really benefiting from these more um, off grid or off the mainstream community interactions, because uh, we do live in a remarkably complex world. Although I think th the goal of being more self-sufficient is very laudable. There's kind of a reality, like I can't, mine oil and turn it into gasoline. Like I'm right. never, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to do that, you know? So there is some dependency there. Um, I, 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 being a chemist, I could in theory probably spin up some penicillin, it, <laughs> it, you know, if I set up the, the right scenario, but mm -hmm. you know, like having access to some pharmaceuticals is going to be a really important, you know, feature of my, my kind of resiliency mm -hmm. play, whether that's banked or you, you know, what have you, but, but having good information about all that, I, I think is incredibly valuable. And to get back to your original question, I think there's a massive in, you know, groundswell of people looking at things like that. And ironically, um, kind of the information brokers, whether it's the WHO, the CDC, mainstream media, social media, they really don't like that independence. And I, I, they, I don't think that this is conspiracy theory at all. Like those folks actively kind of suppress and marginalize folks who are working towards some degree of independence, whether it's independence of thought or independence of just you know, the way that you, you live your life. And I think that that's telling, I don't know that anywhere in history, when you look at the people that were trying to broker the truth, those people ever ended up being the good guys. Right. You know? So yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Well, it's, let's play off of uh, you bringing up community and the healthy rebellion. Uh, another trend I've noticed is a lot of these um, people creating alternate tech uh not sure else to say it but um now people have their own basically a community of social media of um you know fellow people who are interested in what they're interested in so you i'm, I'm on the healthy rebellion so i know all about that uh there's like a business one that i'm part of but it seems like the trend is going to uh mm -hmm. um this alt tech um what made you move in that direction was that something you thought about for a while you saw that coming or was that just kind of a a random idea you had uh, it, it's funny it was um google and facebook trying to make our business disappear honestly hmm. um within the span of a week everything that we were selling on facebook just did, did, did our ability to sell it at a profit disappeared. And we, we had a very good business selling information products like the keto masterclass and different yeah. types of resets and everything in that, that scene has a life cycle, but I it went from quite good to just falling off a cliff. And then 
it was it was maybe a week two weeks after that that uh i had a text message from chris kresser and mark sisson they're like hey have you checked your site analytics and we had lost overnight 97 percent of our site traffic so I had a website that had been around over 10 years and had hundreds of first page search results on a, on a host of things, you know, uh, ketogenic diet for chronic kidney disease. And, you know, like a, a bunch of different things and all of that kind of disappeared. It was still there, but people had a hell of a time finding it. Like hmm. you would need to know to put in Rob Wolf chronic kidney disease. Whereas before, if somebody had put in ketogenic diet, kidney health, I would have been one of the the first search returns and there were there were a good number of people that were caught up i believe it was called the owl uh a google update you know and and the explanation there was that oh no we're really not penalizing certain websites it's just we expect you to have certain standards of how you update your material and whatnot and we we're super diligent on that our all of our material is is primary generated, like we did all the stuff that was supposed to fit those guidelines. What was interesting is the folks that were caught in that first round of, of updates were mainly in the low carb scene, kind of this ancestral health scene. And I, I will say a good number of those people were very far out on the, like, say like anti-vaccine mm-hmm. kind of scenario. Some of them believe that 5G is going to barbecue your innards and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was an interesting mix. Like I would say that some of the folks were very far out in into some of these uh, theories. Um, some people would say that my stuff is very far out there. You know, I, I feel, you know, it's kind of whatever. But but there, mm-hmm. were, there were a group of people that were caught up in that. And we literally were in this spot where I was like, okay, so our ability to reach people through standard means is effectively gone and we are totally beholden to the tech monopolies to be able to reach people with the the current um setup that we have and how do we work around that like one thought was okay we throw in the towel and maybe i finally open up like a a cidery distillery and i i quit selling health and start selling booze which is something that is still in the back of my head like if covid taught me anything um in good times, people drink, and in bad times, people drink more. So maybe that's a that's a really good resiliency play, you know, from a Indeed. financial perspective. But we had a pretty sizable email list, and we thought about this uh, this paywall, and also seeing. And this is like end of 2018, beginning of 2019. The toxicity of social media, particularly around like the election run up and stuff like that, was it was just getting to a fever pitch. So I didn't really want to be a significant part of that. We needed a way to reach people in an alternate way that hopefully the tech monopolies couldn't just like crimp that stuff off. And so we launched this Healthy Rebellion and the Healthy Rebellion has this this, uh, goal of liberating a million people from the sick care system. The primary point that we have on that is we want you to figure out what your metabolic health is. And we have some very inexpensive testing that we recommend that people do so that we know where you are in that story, depending on where you are in that story, then we want to connect you with some sort of a functional medicine practitioner or, or health coach to help keep you on path. And then finally, I really feel strongly that the payer piece of healthcare needs to be completely exploded and revamped. I I think something like a health share, like a, a, uh, typically these religious-based health shares are something really magical about that because yeah. individuals have skin in the game in those those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And 
that's kind of the foundation of what we put together within the Healthy Rebellion. And so far, it's gone really well. And we have capped the Healthy Rebellion membership at about a thousand people. And um, I think if it got much larger than that, it would become untenable and kind of chaotic. Mm-hmm. But it's it's big enough that we have a lot of smart people in there and a lot of dynamicism, but it's also small enough that, um, and the fact that people are paying to be there, they're not jerks to one another or yeah. much, much, much less likely to be. And so far, it's done really well. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, people behave differently when they have to pay for something. Um, if it was a dollar. I think that they would behave in a, like the, the sifting process would be so remarkable. Like if you had to pay a dollar to be on Instagram or something like it, yeah. would, uh, it would really change things in a remarkable way. Yeah, definitely. Um, so homesteading is another trend. I think that's growing. That's actually um, for my family. Our, our long-term goal is to be able to get some land somewhere and just, um, Maybe do like some modern homesteading. Not that we, like you said, like you can't do everything on your own, mm-hmm. but I think it's good to uh, grow some of your own food. So we've had a garden for the last um, five or six years right. and enjoyed that. Um, I love the idea of regenerative agriculture. And I think that like one of my goals in life, if I could just raise a cow or two, I think that would uh, make me happy. Um, but do you think that trends right. um, going that way? And what impact do you think that could have on like decentralizing uh, food systems? Because I know you like to talk about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that trend growing. Um, There's also, interestingly, a lot of pushback against that that trend, like kind of marginalizing the people doing it, which I I think is really interesting. But uh, Mm. some people somewhere don't really want folks to be more independent and not completely reliant on, right. you know, kind of the established systems. I forget if this is a hundred percent accurate, but I, I seem to recall that like there was some provision in the Patriot Act that if you have more than a week's worth of food on hand, you could be considered a domestic terrorist or something, you know, and a, don't hundred hmm. percent quote me on that. Right. But I, I think that that's kind of a credible thing, but that's a, that's a remarkable statement. Like think about Louisiana and hurricanes. Think about, you know, this pipeline that just got, got shut down by, by ransomware and whatnot. Um, why would you not encourage a populace to have some resiliency, to have some, some food and water on hand? And on the one hand, they kind of do recommend that. But then on the other hand, they've got some provisions where if they want to paint you as a bad person, they can, they can do that too. Um, I do think that just the awareness of heading down this this process of when you start growing some of your own food, then you start interacting with people nearby who raise their own food, it at least creates the opportunity for that decentralization of the food system. And and, uh, what I see within that, what makes a lot of sense to me economically is a lot more food is produced and, and consumed locally. It doesn't mean that we just do away with our, our interconnected global distribution system, like the logistics and, and um, connectivity we have, like what Walmart and Costco were able to do as far as like moving goods and services around the planet is jaw dropping. It's really yeah. amazing stuff. And I, I'm not in that camp that I, I think that, you know, it's ridiculous that avocados from Mexico get eaten in Toronto. I'm not actually in that camp, but 
I think that it makes a lot of sense to to investigate what what things can be done at a more local level and and more sustainably, you know, more of the the local inputs, um, you know, kind of going back into the food system. And I think over time we're gonna we're gonna see some move in in that direction for sure. Nice, very interesting. All right, so you uh, recently wrote a book, um, Sacred Cow, guys all about uh the case Mm -hmm. for better meat and regenerative agriculture uh were there any uh ideas or challenges that you unexpectedly encountered when you were working on that any uh you know i'm really gonna have to rethink this as you dove into that research because you've been talking about this for a while yeah you know we had some so when we We've known that uh, Diana Rogers, who's my co-author on mm-hmm. that, we've known since at least 2010 that we were going to do some project like this. And we have both the book and the film by the, the same title. So if folks yep. are interested in this or they know somebody that might be interested, but they're not going to read a book, the, the film is very, very accessible. But, you know, when we started off with this, we had a, a huge list of assumptions, you know, that we started working our way through and trying to find information. And we really approached it with the the mindset of let's try to disprove this thing first instead of just, okay. And so as an example, um, there's this assumption that pastured meat is significantly healthier than conventional meat. And when we really got in and looked at all the research on that, there just wasn't a huge difference between pastured meat and conventional meat. The the big, t- and there's been so much gnashing of teeth within kind of the meat elitist scene in the yeah. ancestral health scene and even the regenerative ag scene. But the, the, the real takeaway is that uh, ruminant meat, the meat that we get from cows and goats and, and sheep and, and similar items is just really, really nutrient dense. It's very, very healthy. Like there's a lot of nutrition there. And it's all, what those animals are incredibly good at doing is taking low nutrient density stuff and consolidating it and turning it into high nutrient density stuff. And uh, pastured dairy is much more nutritious than conventional dairy. Um, pastured eggs are, are more nutritious. Wild caught fish is more nutritious than farmed fish. So there are differences out there, but I could make the case that pastured meat is better from an ethics perspective because of the way it's, it's treated and it's better from an environmental perspective because the, the inputs are, are more sustainable. Mm-hmm. But even that said, conventional uh, animals raised in the conventional system spend 70 to 80% of their life on grass. They're not eating grain the, the whole time. Like there's some, some finishing where there's some grain involved, but they, they mainly exist on grass. So even the conventional model of beef production is far more sustainable than pork and poultry, hmm. which are 100% grain and soy fed. Like they are, right. are completely dependent on these, these kind of agricultural inputs. And that was a pretty good surprise. And it also has created no small amount of drama within the, the communities that we are a part of, you know, the, um, there are folks that, uh, insist that there's a huge difference between the the nutritional qualities of of conventional meat and and, uh, pastured meat. And with the current data that we have available, there's just not a strong case to to make that. And and that's been interesting to deal with the backlash around that. Yeah. You know, um, 
it's interesting you brought that point because when I read the book, that was kind of what stuck out to me. Um, I had been hearing that. Yeah. I, I think it was uh, John Wellborn a couple of years ago I was just talking about um, like if you're going to spend the extra money, spend the extra money on poultry and that stuff first before you spend the extra money on, um, you know, pasture raised beef and stuff. Uh, but when I read it in your book, I mean, you really laid right. out the case that um, conventional meat seems to be just about as healthy but like you said from an ethical and environmental standpoint it, it is much better to uh, try to pasture raise these these animals so i thought that was very interesting i appreciated that the documentary was awesome we watched that and there uh it's called holy cow holy cow farm fresh they're in indiana uh they're on your documentary we mm. bought we recently bought a cow and a pig from them. We yeah. uh, split one with um, my wife's sister. Oh, so nice. If it wasn't for that movie, we wouldn't have known they were there. So that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. You also are, I, I respect, respected your work from uh, like a business standpoint, just seeing you build your business over 10 years. And, uh, you know, me, I'm trying to start out with this podcast, uh, trying to control some of the source of my own income to be a little bit more resilient. Uh, what mm -hmm. advice could you offer those who are working on building a business kind of based on a personal brand? I think you've done a really bang up job. Um, and since you've been in uh, almost the inception of podcasts, uh, just what, what can you share with uh, those who share that dream? Man, it, this is something I'm still trying to understand myself. Like I have a modest, say like social media reach. Um, in theory, our podcast is a, a top 1% podcast. Really what that means is that there are a lot of podcasts that get almost no downloads, and, you know, uh, yeah. because there's some huge ones like uh, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan that, that um, just have massive, massive followings. But it's interesting what I've, I've discovered... God, how do I want to say this? There's a tendency when interacting on social media to follow that dopamine hit of likes and interaction. And there's definitely some, there's some legitimate feedback, you know, loop there. Like if what you're posting is worthless, nobody's really going to interact with it. But there's also this flip side that we tend to see a disproportionate degree of engagement when people are kind of hyperbolic and over the top, like they're carnivore is the only way to eat and all plants are poison. And, you know, people like that, um, they get a lot of bandwidth, they get a lot of following. And I think it can be disheartening on the one hand for folks that are just trying to have a very balanced approach to things. But what's kind of interesting that I've been observing I've got 100,000 Instagram followers, about 100,000 folks on, on Facebook between the two platforms, 100,000 Twitter followers. So it's, it's modest. It's decent size. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that would love to, to have that level, but comparatively, it's pretty modest. But what I've discovered is that because I try not to be a complete dork in the way that I, I approach this stuff. I try to make it evidence-based, try to have some fun, also yeah. take some risks talking about some things that are a little bit, little bit controversial, but also what I've discovered is asking questions is much more helpful and much less likely to get me um, canceled than hmm. like making in particularly emphatic statements. But what I've found is that my reach and impact 
I'm punching way, way above my weight class. Like I know folks that have a half million, a million, you know, Instagram followers or what have you. And they may post a picture of themselves after they worked out and they're jacked and lean and everything. But then when it comes time to rally the troops for a movie, a documentary, a fundraising deal for regenerative ag or something like that, the engagement those folks have is very, very low. It's as if they had a small fraction of the followers that I have. So Mm -hmm. I guess that's one thing that's been interesting. And I still don't know the right and wrong around it. Um, I have social media uh, uh, accounts, but I'm not really on there. I, I write up some stuff. I have my assistant post it, and I don't really interact on it. Like the the main places folks are able to have a conversation with me is either the Healthy Rebellion or the the Q and A that we do as part of the Healthy Rebellion podcast. And I honestly wasn't sure if that was going to be career suicide for me, but um, I had grown so unable to deal with the toxicity of social media. And I've been online for like 20 years in all kinds of forums. And I really looked at um, spending at least a couple hours a day answering all questions that came to me from these social media platforms. That was part of my job. I had, uh, you know, my ethos was if I help enough people, then they will be interested enough in my work that they will patronize me. And, and it had worked quite well for a long time, but um but the, the toxicity of social media got to a point where I'm like, I, I can't do it. So I do broadcast only. Very rarely where I, I pop my head up. And I'm like, hey, this is really me. And here's a topic that I'm, I think is worth your consideration. And if you want to chat about it, I will be available for the next hour or whatever. And I'll, I'll go back and forth with people. But um, I think that that's one thing to keep in mind is that uh, there's a alluring feedback loop due to the way the algorithms work on these social media platforms that being kind of an over-the-top asshole works from the perspective of getting likes and getting follows and all that type of stuff. I'm not totally sold that it works from the perspective of um, having legit impact. Like yeah. a lot of these these folks that I see doing that um, – I, I, yeah, I, I guess that that's, you know, that, that, that would be the advice that I would give. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm right about that. Like, it's still mm-hmm. something that, that I waffle on. It's like, well, if I were a little more hyperbolic or a little more like um, divisive in my message, would I have twice as much following? And then I would have that much more impact in the things that I'm, I'm doing. But, um, but the fact that I, I, to some degree, I think keep my feet on the ground, then I actually get invited to be an advisor to businesses and academic institutions and stuff like that. So there's a trade-off with um, taking that other route. Like you may develop a following, but the, there's also going to be this reality that a whole lot of people are are going to just um, write you off as being kind of an over-the-top sell it. And even though I really try to have a, a balanced approach to things and, and be very um, evidence-based and also change my mind when evidence warrants it, yes. I still have a lot of people that hate me and, and you know, just can't, can't say enough negative things about me. And I'm kind of like, okay, I know some people just rub other folks wrong and I, I totally get that, but um, I'm really trying to not create that like social immune response where people want to wall me away, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I still develop that, but. Yeah. yeah, man. Well, it just blows my mind that some people would uh, hate you or 
disagree with you that much that they'd be, uh, you know, mean to you. But uh, I've been following Rob for over 10 years. Um, you said something about you, you know, changing your mind over the years. And I can't tell you how many times you've, you've come on and said, you know, I used to think this. Well, now in light of this, I now think this. And I just think that you're somebody who has integrity. Um, you've helped my family. I don't bring a lot of people on to talk to the parents of my listeners unless there's someone who's really benefited my life. And I think Rob's work is it's good. It's beautiful. He's got true stuff. And uh, thanks for coming on, Rob. Tell us um, where can people find you and what's the next big thing you're working on? Uh, probably main place to track me down is, is robwolf.com. Like there's links to so, uh, sacred cow from there. Sacredcow.info is where the main website that uh, Diana runs. And if people are interested in regenerative ag and in particular, these questions around is animal husbandry, this massive negative impact on, on climate change, go check that out. Like, uh, and, and definitely don't believe your first pass of everything that we put forward on that. But, um, I offer it up as maybe the mainstream narrative around this is similar to the narrative that we've seen around cholesterol and saturated fat for the last 50 years, that there was this claim that the science was settled. This is fully understood. And just uh, last year, the, the uh, Food and Drug Administration in developing the dietary guidelines totally walked back their position on saturated fat. They basically said it is not a nutrient of concern. Mm -hmm. This is in shocking contrast to what has <laughs> happened before. And I just offer that as an example that people have prevented, uh, presented this ironclad position on things like saturated fat and cholesterol. And there was dissent within the scientific community. They said, no, you can't say that. That's not accurate. Here's all this stuff. And it's taken the better part of 50 years to get them to just kind of walk some of that back. And I'm just suggesting that we may have a similar situation with regards to animal husbandry and climate change. Don't believe me at first pass, just at least leave some, a little crack of credulity in, in your mind that that may in fact be the case, you know, and then get in and educate yourself around that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, robwolf.com and then sacred cow are probably the, the most valuable places for folks to, to go kick the tires on the, the stuff that we're doing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. If you are just wanting to eat healthier, if you have, uh, autoimmune conditions, um, if you're interested in, ketogenic diet for different therapeutic reasons, or just want to know how to eat a more nutrient dense diet, I would send you to Rob Wolf. He's my guy. Um, I guess that's it, Rob. Thanks for coming on so much. Good to talk to you in person. It's huge honor. And you know, it, it's honestly folks like you doing really good work that allows me to, um, share some of what we're doing with uh, new audiences and, and new people because the, the tech platforms thus far have not really pinched on the, uh, the podcast medium. So there is this right. opportunity for folks to begin developing a relationship with different people and different ideas. And so what, uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. Like it's a non-trivial amount of work. There's a, a, um, uh, a cost benefit thing that folks like you have to make, like, is this going to be worthwhile to do this thing? Like, am I going to help enough people? Is there actually right. going to be some financial reward at the end of the day for, for doing this and, and uh, props to you for getting in and doing that. That's awesome. Thank you, sir.